Good morning. Well, that was beautiful. I wanted to see how many of you were going to try and go for the high note there at the end. That's always scary, right? Let me encourage you, if you are looking for some place to serve, we always need hands on deck. So this Tuesday, please come out and help Mr. Nelson and Northwest Christian Academy. We need these rooms cleaned out. And if you've ever had to carry books, books are extremely heavy. My, my father's library, we had to move it. And it was, I mean, every box weighed over 50, 60 pounds. So... You don't have to do your cardio on that day. Just skip the gym. Come out here. Help us. We'll have water. I mean, we'll have water fountains that you can drink from. <laughs> There'll be food. And by food, I mean there's a Burger King right down the street. So you'll be fine. Come on out. If you have your Bibles, turn in them to 1 Timothy 6, verses 20 and 21. I recently changed cable providers because AT&T is of the devil. <laughs> for those of you who work at AT&T, I'm sorry that you work for the devil. <laughs> Stephanie and I, we, we get into these like rock, paper, scissors contests of who's going to actually have to call AT&T because we're going to be on the, we're going to be on the phone for at least an hour and nobody's going to know what we need. Oh, I, one guy's going to tell you you can do this. Another guy's going to tell you you can't do that. And then they outsource you to India. And you're just so confused and angry. You wonder by the end of your phone conversation, would a Christian have these feelings? So we ended up changing to Dish Network, which is slightly better, slightly better. But when I, when I changed to Dish Network, I, I noticed that who, whoever started Dish Network, I think they're from the South because all of their commercials have Tennessee volunteers, then they're always scoring touchdowns, those one or two times that we do it. And they must be from the South. And I, I, I kind of gathered that from the types of programs that are on Dish Network. One of them, one section is just full of spiritual channels. I mean, like 10 or 15 Christian channels or spiritual channels or religious channels, whatever uh, word you want to use there, I think that there's some overlap between them. And what I found in watching those shows and watching those channels is that there is a lot of stuff that passes for Christian that just isn't. And it's very disheartening to me to know that my people, my church, might be being deceived by what they see on some of these stations. Now, not all of these are bad. I, I can tell you one thing. I didn't find one channel that I wanted to watch. Not one. I didn't find anything of substance. Nothing that challenged me or, or convicted me or, or does what the Word of God does, which is to convict us. To, to confront us with the reality of our sinful nature and to tell us the good news of Jesus Christ and the redemption that he brings to life. And I, I just didn't find that. I found so much about having the best life now. 
You know what I'm talking about. You, you see it all the time. I saw so much about, about building your portfolios and if you, if you give X amount of dollars, you'll get X amount of dollars back and the, if you just have a little bit more faith, your, your bank account will never be you know, less than $10,000 or some kind of ridiculous, I mean, it's not, that's, that's a little bit extreme, but it's not that far off. And, and so long as they have a cross in the background, we assume that they must be telling the truth. This morning, I want to talk about guarding the truth. 1 Timothy 6, 20 and 21, Paul is writing a letter to a young pastor. Interesting there. A little parallel between what was going on in Ephesus and what's going on in our midst this very morning. A young pastor, and he says to Timothy, Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble, oh gosh, the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us a heart and a desire for your truth. Lord, your truth is real, but it is not easy. It is honest, but it is not light. There is a heaviness to your word, but your word is not there to destroy us, it is there to destroy sin, that which is foreign to our true human nature, that which is an alien here in this life. You did not make us to be sinful. We made ourselves sinful. We chose to pursue our way over your way. And Father, we pray that by your word, you would confront us with truth you would convict us by this truth and you would transform us to conform to the image of Christ. Make that happen this morning. Amen. Timothy was a young man and he was in a difficult church in Ephesus. Paul predicted back in Acts chapter 20 that after he left Ephesus that false teachers were going to swoop in. Now think about the broad scope of that application. After the apostles dying out, false teachers swoop in. There has always needed to be a time where we have had to defend the, the faith. Even early on, it's still relevant today where we have to defend the truth that the apostles brought to us. The, the apostles were, were God's special mercenaries. They were commissioned to go into all the world and to make disciples of Christ, teaching everyone to obey what he commanded. Their message was more important than their men. Though they were selected by God, their message was more important than their, who they were. When, when Paul wrote to the Galatians, he said, even if I were to come to you or an angel, that, that means there's some kind of supernatural manifestation and it's impressive, okay? If, if I, if an apostle were to come to you, somebody who has the name Bishop, and, and some people today call themselves apostles, that is very tricky, 
But if they come to you with the name apostle or bishop or angel, they've got some kind of supernatural power and they teach to you a message contrary to the one we first preached to you. He said, even if I do it, Paul said, even if I come to you and I preach a message different than what I preached to you, let them be cursed to hell. The word there is anathema. Let them, let them go off to hell. That's the closest the Bible gets to saying go to hell. Very serious stuff. That people would call themselves shepherds of sheep and they would lead the sheep right off the cliff. And so Timothy is in this situation in Ephesus and Paul predicted that after he left, these wolves would come into the church and try and scatter the sheep. That is the church members. So Paul, at the end of this letter, his first letter, gives him a final commission, which is really the overarching theme of the whole letter, and that is to guard the truth and avoid irreverent babble and contradictions. And just like 2,000 years ago, that commission is important. Just today, it's equally as important. Ross Douthat, in his book, Bad Religion, How America Became a Nation of Heretics, argues that Christians aren't becoming less religious, but less Christian. You know, these words aren't synonymous, the idea of religious and Christian. I meet people all the time who tell me their friend is very religious. Are they Christian? Well, yeah, they're religious. The two aren't synonymous. A Christian believes the message, the true message that was delivered by Jesus Christ. You, you can even believe in God and not be a Christian, right? Theism is not the same as Christianity. In fact, James said that the demons believe in God. They have an intellectual knowledge of God. So if you believe in God, James, and that's all you believe in, James says you're just like a demon, you haven't done anything particularly Christian if you believe in God. I hear this all the time. Christians are impressed when they hear the statistic that says that Americans still believe in God. Don't be impressed by that. What God are you talking about? The world was filled in Israel. The world was filled with people who believed in God and God's. And they believed that there was life after death and all of these things, but that doesn't make it Christian. I want to read this quote from Ross's book because it's, it, it's so spot on that it's scary. It's a little long, but I want to read it to you because I think it describes what American Christianity so often digresses into. In America, the Jesus of the New Testament whose paradoxical mix of qualities and commandments presents a challenge to every ideology and faction, has been replaced in the hearts and minds of many Americans with a more congenial figure, a choose-your-own-Jesus, who better fits our own preconceptions about what a Savior should and shouldn't be. In other words, he's saying Americans want to create Jesus in their own image rather than Americans being created in Christ's image. I think that's true. 
He goes on, likewise in this America, the traditional Christian attempt to balance the belief that God desires human happiness with the reality of human suffering has been transformed into simpler teaching that God wants everyone to get rich. That your house or car or high paying job was intended for you from before the foundation of the world and that the test of true faith is the rewards that it reaps for believers here on earth. The result is a country where religion actively encourages the sort of recklessness that produced our current economic meltdown rather than serving as a break on materialism and a rebuke to avarice. The the scripture says, when when it talks about riches in the New Testament, it is almost ubiquitously negative about riches. Jesus says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get to heaven. And so when you hear sermons and pastors preaching about getting rich, they are not preaching the way Jesus preached. I wanna confront you with that this morning. I know that that's not popular. I, I wanna be rich till I read that passage And I realized that riches complicate our faith because what we do is we end up putting our faith in our money. We end up worshiping the created thing rather than the creator. And so when you hear people preaching that, I want you to see the danger. He goes on. In this America too, the Christian teaching that every human soul is unique and precious has been stressed by the prophets of self-fulfillment and gurus of self-love at the expense of the equally important teaching that every human soul is fatally corrupted by original sin. Absent the latter emphasis, religion becomes a license for egotism and selfishness easily employed to justify what used to be considered deadly sins. The result is a society where pride becomes, quote, healthy self-esteem, vanity becomes, quote, self-improvement, adultery becomes, quote, following your heart, greed and gluttony become, quote, living the American dream. In other words, we take these sins and we just call them by another name. a name that's more palatable. He says, this is the real story of religion in America. For all its piety and fervor, today's United States need to be recognized for what it really is. Not a Christian country, but a nation of heretics. A heretic is someone who distorts the truth. This is not simply a false religion, though we have plenty of those. It is a distortion of the true religion. It uses Christian words, but not a Christian dictionary. It looks like a Christian. It's like that fake Louis Vuitton bag that you have that we all know is fake. Or the fake coach bag that you have. I know it's fake because you bought it in Chinatown. And it's, listen to me. I, you don't know a guy. Trust me, you don't. You know, everybody knows a guy. It looks like Louis Vuitton 
And then when you get closer, it's like Louis, and there's, instead of a V, it's like an upside down N. <laughs> Louis Negrin, and you, you're reading it, and it's bootleg. And it's there to deceive people, and people are impressed with it. It's not the real thing. You know, the real thing costs something. And it's the same way with the Christian faith. The real thing is going to cost us something. It's not palatable. It's not. This morning, I just want to take the text. I want to explain it. And then I want to talk about four things that we can do, four applications for our personal lives and for our lives as a church that we can make to guard the truth. First, I want to point out, let's take a look at this text. Just look back at your, your Bibles in 1 Timothy 6, 20. This is something we might quickly gloss over if we're reading. It, it begins with Paul saying, oh, Timothy. When I was young, I learned early on that my parents had a way of saying things with their tone and not necessarily with their words. When my dad would say, Andrew, my heart would skip a beat. It meant something like the, the, the dictionary definition of Andrew was to get off one's rear end speedily and find out what your father wanted before he takes a yardstick to your backside. Now, typically it meant my name. But when he said, Andrew, all hell was about to break loose in this region right here. You, you know, some of you are like, you know, that guy does not have a backside. Listen to me. I did it one time. <laughs> it just got worn off. Like an like a axe cutter on a tree. Just <laughs> my mother would call my full name. She'd say, Andrew Philip Summers. And that meant something like, how could you leave that half-eaten burrito under your bed for the last month? And I knew I was in trouble. The point is that sometimes the meaning of our words is heightened or changed or intensified by our tone. And in the passage this morning, Paul begins by saying, oh, Timothy. The sentence actually begins with an omega in the Greek, which is like the O, letter O in our English, when we say, oh, so-and-so, and it stresses or expresses an emotion. This is Paul saying to Timothy, if you remember one thing I've told you, remember this. Guard the truth. It is particularly important, in other words. Truth has fallen on hard times in our culture and we're told with absolute certainty that there's no such thing as absolute certainty. Consider the contradiction there. Well, if someone ever tells you that there is no such thing as absolute truth, ask them if they're absolutely certain. Society holds tolerance and diversity to be the chief morals of the new civilization. If tolerance and diversity were defined according to their original definitions, then I would agree that this is a good thing, but they're not. Instead, tolerance has come to mean acceptance, and diversity has come to mean welcoming of contradictory truths. 
So as a society, we tolerate, we're not tolerant unless we accept what another person does. And if you don't believe that the definition has changed, just ask young people. Young people believe that tolerance means that you don't judge another person's actions as right or wrong. But that's not what tolerance means at all. Tolerate is what you do when you take a swig of Buckley's. You tolerate it. Because you know that if you don't, there's going to be something worse that happens. Tolerate means I put up with even though I don't agree with it. It means that I realize I'm going to live with you and I'm going to let you do what you do because you have the right as a human being to rebel against God, at least the right between me and you. You don't have that right before God, but between me and you, I can't judge you as saying that you, you, you shouldn't do it. I can absolutely say, however, it's wrong. It's wrong. That's wrong. That doesn't correspond to the truth. The truth is this. You see where the truth says this? You're doing this. You're, you're not doing what's right. Diversity has come to mean something different. Diversity, God, God was the creator of diversity. God created man in his image. And in his image, he made a male and a female. That's diversity at its best. And then he made different nations. And the Bible says in Acts chapter 17, he put all those different nations where they are to be at their allotted times. He gave different cultures, their different cultures, in order that they might all seek God. He, he created diversity. Red and yellow, black and white are precious in his sight. God is not monochromatic. He's polychromatic. But diversity today means that we accept contradictory truths. And so we are sacrificing truth on the altar of peace. Then in order to have peace, we affirm and deny the same thing in the same sense and at the same time. It either is raining or it is not raining at the same time and the same place and in the same way. There are no round squares. And today's postmodern world says diversity is accepting contradictory truths. That is not greater than the truth. And so Paul says, oh, Timothy, guard the truth. There is no greater need for our world than for Christians to guard the truth. He says here, guard the deposit entrusted to you. The Templar Knights dedicated themselves to the protection of pilgrims wanting to travel from Britain to the Holy Land in Jerusalem because the journey to Jerusalem was costly, long, and very dangerous. The Templar Knights would protect them by having a, in the Temple Church in London, Christians who had money could go and they could give a deposit in the, at the Templar Church in London and they would receive a certificate of deposit, and then they would go on their travel to Jerusalem, and anybody who tried to rob them on the road wasn't going to get anything because they had left their money at the, the Templar church. And then when they got to Jerusalem, they'd hand over their, their ticket, and they would get their money back. Sound like a bank to you, right? That's what it is. That's the predecessor to the modern banking. We go and we deposit our checks, and we get a certificate of deposit, and we look on our online and we see, hmm, I got paid $5 today, I'm doing well. And we, we keep it there and it's protected. So we think. And we guard things that matter to us. 
Paul told Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. The deposit was the true gospel of Jesus Christ and all that he taught. It was precious cargo. And all the apostles and all Christians have been commissioned to carry and share this deposit with the world. By this deposit, men and women and children would become disciples of Christ, learning all that Christ commanded and obeying it in their daily lives. And by it and it alone, men and women are saved. What can be more important than guarding the deposit of truth? Think about the way that you treat your money. The, the way that you treat your money, I mean, when you, when you make that deposit, you get that receipt, you check it when you get home, you, you constantly want to make sure that you got your money, it's important, you're checking on it constantly, you need to know it's there, you pay extra money to make sure nobody steals your identity, because it's important. And Paul tells Timothy, I want you to guard this deposit. We've given you something, guard it. What can be more important than the truth that Christ alone takes away our sins? Well, why does Paul even tell Timothy to guard this deposit? Well, what is he guarding it from? It's not like the deposit could be stolen. It's not like the apostles were the only ones who could preach it. In fact, when some in Philippi were preaching the gospel for selfish reasons, Paul proclaimed, what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached, and because of this, I rejoice. In other words, Paul is saying, there will be times where people might preach the gospel truly for bad motives, but if they're preaching the gospel truly, that matters, as Paul said, Christ is being proclaimed. If they're preaching it truly. I think people can preach the gospel falsely with good motives. I think that men and women can preach the gospel falsely and have good motives for doing so. But good motives are not what God is going to judge us on. It is whether or not we have guarded the deposit which he has given to us. Paul wanted Timothy to protect the truth from false teachers. No one could steal this. Those false teachers were the wolves who wore sheep's clothing, seeking to devour the sheep with the subtle half-truths and deceptive speech. They give half-truths. They, they don't just come out, you know, the, the devil's not the boogie monster who jumps out of the closet and, and has a forked tongue and says, follow me. That's not an invitation to follow him. No, most often he appears as what? An angel of light. He appears as truth. He, he appears as, as a help to you. And so these false teachers are giving half-truths. They tell you kind of the truth. And that means that these false teachers weren't calling Christians to deny the faith, but were changing the meaning of it. The, the, the false teacher doesn't call you to deny the faith. He calls you to, to, he changes the meaning of what the faith is so that you still think you're a Christian when in actuality, you're not believing what Christians have believed. They use Christian vocabulary, but not a Christian dictionary. They use the Bible, but did not preach the true gospel. 
They spoke from their own minds and not from the mouth of God. Jeremiah warned the Israelites. He says this, thus says the Lord of hosts, do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. They've got the right name. They're called preacher. They're called bishop. They fill you with vain hopes. The word vain there means empty. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. Listen to the speech of the church today. They know that the way to grow the church is by telling you no harm will come to you. If you have more faith, you'll be fine. That cancel go away. You'll get that money. That job will come. That, that person you're looking for to marry, they're going to come. But God makes no promises like that. Paul told Timothy that the time was coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have, having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. That is, they have deceitful flattery. They will look for people who will tell them what they want to hear. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The Bible is not irrelevant. You hear people say you can't teach the Bible anymore because it's irrelevant. The Bible is not irrelevant. It's just hard. It's living and active. Sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from its sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That's what the Bible is. The Bible's like the mirror that you look at in the morning. When you get up in the morning and you go into your bathroom, you look in the mirror and you see how gross you are. You don't say, I want another mirror. And that was the vanity of, of, of Snow White. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? I mean, she, she needed the mirror to tell her something, to lie to her. But when we go to the mirror in the morning, we see we've got to fix this hair. We've got to clip those nose hairs. We've got to... Guys, you have nose hairs, by the way. Just, just to let you know. Some of you, it looks like you've got Al Borland up there. Clip your nose hairs. You've got to wipe that thing out of your nose. You gotta brush your teeth, broccoli still in it. You gotta wipe the bags away. You gotta wipe the dirt off your face. God's word is like a mirror. Tells you what you really are. Who, who would look in the mirror and see all that crud on their face and not walk away correcting it? Who, who would do that? You don't do it every day. You, you get up and you correct it. But the word of God has to be used the same way in our spiritual lives. When we go to the word of God, it tells us all of the areas that we need to cleanse and clean up. Think about the idea of standing naked and exposed. Is there anything more uncomfortable than that? We all have that recurring nightmare about, you know, going to work and we're naked or something like that. Some of you are saying, no, we don't. Well, now you will. If you, you know, you've had that, that nightmare. There's nothing more embarrassing than that. 
And that's often why we run from the word because it exposes our nakedness. That is our sins. And it leaves us standing there naked in need for covering. But God's word doesn't just leave us naked. It also clothes us. Love does not rejoice in falsehood, but rejoices in the truth. And the truth that we are naked, then the word of God is loving when it reveals to us our nakedness so that we might be clothed. Listen to the loving appeal that Christ makes to the Laodicean church. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. I'm arguing this morning that you as a believer don't run to have your ears itched by false teachers. You're naked in your sins. And true teachers tell you that. And they tell you that you can be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Remember what Douthat's analysis was. Pride has become a healthy self-esteem. Vanity has become self-improvement. Adultery has been called following your heart. Greed and gluttony has been called, been called living the American dream. But I implore you to allow the word of God to expose your nakedness this morning so that Christ will clothe you with righteousness. He says, avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. The second action that the apostle warns Timothy to take is to avoid. This is not simply a staying away from, it's not a passive avoidance, but an active avoidance. Paul is commanding Timothy to deliberately turn away from these men who bear the name Christian, but who don't teach the true gospel. They do two things. They speak irreverent babble. That means that it is both morally and mentally vacant. Irreverent babble. It is morally irreverent, vacant, and it is babble. It is mentally. It's nonsense when they speak it. And it contradicts the word of God. The Greek word there is the word antithesis, from which we get our word antithesis. It is the opposite of what is being taught in the scriptures. In Ephesus, false teachers were contradicting two major things, and that was redemption and renewal. Paul warned that these men were forbidding marriage and abstinence from certain foods that correspond to their myths about the world. They were probably what are called Gnostics. A Gnostic was a person who denied the goodness of the created world. And Gnostics were like a parasite religion. They would go from religion to religion, host to host, and they would distort the original image of it. That's what parasites do. Parasites live off the body of another and they distort the image of it. I've been watching Shark, Shark Week all, all week long. Anybody else watching Shark Week? All right. All right. All right, some other people who are addicted to television. Well, one, there was one shark who's got a parasite who sticks on his eyeball. It's so nasty. That's just such a nasty thought. And eventually it eats the eyeball away and the, eye, the, the, the shark can't see. It's called a Greenland shark. And the shark loses its sight. It doesn't need it, but it changes the look of the shark. And that's what parasites do. They attach themselves to a host and they destroy the original image. And these Gnostics were coming in with their worldview and they were saying something like, the physical world is evil. Deny yourself the pleasures of the physical world and 
seek the secret truth of their myths. That's what they were teaching. And Paul says, these men are false teachers. That sounds holy. You can even hear some of that in some of our churches today, that denying the physical reality is what we're after, or that the physical body is evil. But God made nature, and he is redeeming our physical nature today. He says, for by this knowledge they are professing, for what they're professing it, some have swerved from the faith. Now, the false teachers have already deceived, have already been deviated from the faith. They've already done that. So Paul's not talking about the false teachers when he says that some have swerved from the faith. He's talking about those people who have abandoned following Christ and are now following the false teachers. That's the final step in the process. And too many Christians have abandoned the true teachings of the apostles to follow the false teachings of false teachers. We have Christians who were disciples of Benny Hinn and Jesse Duplantis. And they're not disciples of Christ. You can even be disciples of good and godly men. One of my favorite pastors is John Piper. I love to listen to John Piper preach. And, and sometimes I find even myself following John Piper rather than following Christ. That happened with, with Pastor Summers, who was here for 34 years. Some people stopped going to church after Pastor Summers left. They said, what am I going to do now? Where am I going to go to church? Uh, well, why not here? But you can go somewhere. Are you disciples of Christ or of Pastor Summers? There is always this temptation to follow men rather than following Christ. And Paul says, listen, some have taken this false truth. And of course, it's, it's okay to follow a man who teaches the truth. It's another thing to make an idol out of him. And it's another thing altogether to follow someone who teaches false truth. And so these false teachers are not simply people teaching different opinions on secondary issues like the age of the earth or the way the earth will end. These are false teachers who oppose the core doctrine of the faith. By doing so, they lead others away from faith and ultimately away from salvation. This is a serious matter. And this is why Paul says, oh, Timothy. Oh, Timothy, guard the deposit. Let's talk really quickly about four things that we can do to protect the gospel and avoid false teachings today. Number one, number one, commit yourself to knowing, understanding, and living according to the word of God. The old adage is true. You will not be able to spot a fake without first knowing what the real thing is like. You ever saw the movie Catch Me If You Can, uh, the movie with Leonardo DiCaprio? He, he, starts fraud, he starts making fraudulent checks. And he was so good at making fraudulent checks that he ended up, after he got out, I think he, I don't remember whether he ended up spending any time in prison, but I know that the FBI used him to spot fakes. He knew the real thing so well that he could spot the false checks. You know, when you, when you look at a dollar bill, you don't look for all the false parts 
on the dollar bill, you look for all the authentic parts. Are the authentic things there? And so the best way for us to do that when we're watching or when we're listening, there, there, are, there are so many voices competing for your attention today in the Christian arena. This is called the age of information. And in the age of information, young people and old people, older people alike are getting huge amounts of information and never stopping to ask themselves, is this information true? One of the big things we're dealing with today is false news. How do we tell false news from real news? Well, think about how much more dire it is in the cacophony of sound on the internet and information that comes and on the screen there's a cross and we think this must be true. Or on YouTube. Christian, in order to prevent, in order to guard the truth, you have to know, understand, and live out the truth of the original word of God. You have to know it for yourself. I should not be telling you for the first time the word of God. You should know it as, in, as, as good as I do. This isn't about me doing the job and you don't have to do the job. You have to know the word of God. You have to make the word of God. You have to not only know it, but you have to understand it. In fact, I would tell you this morning, stop reading your Bibles. Start studying your Bibles. Know them. Buy a good study Bible. Don't just take verses out of their context. So you have to know, you have to understand, and you have to live out. The last thing I say there is you have to live out because you have to see God's truth in real life situations. You have to live out the selfless life that Christ has called us to live to understand why this gospel's true. The, the application of the head knowledge solidifies the truth of what God is saying in his word. Every educator knows that. You can't just give the kid head knowledge. They have to go out and live it and do it. And when they do it, now it becomes wisdom. So Christian, you have a responsibility to know, to understand, and to live out the word of God in order to guard the deposit that was given to us. Paul said, if you don't know the word of God, you're like an infant in a boat. Imagine that imagery. An infant in, his, in a boat all by himself, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. If you don't know the truth, you're in this boat, you're all by yourself, and wherever the Christian world is taking you, you're going. We don't know to distinguish between fads and falsehoods and truths and testimonies. The second thing we have to do is we have to build a coherent Christian worldview. Every person has a worldview. It's either coherent or incoherent. It's either Christian or something else. A worldview is the framework through which we make sense of all of reality. Whether we state it or not, we reveal that we, what we believe about the life by how we live. Our worldview, it's like an iceberg. All you can see is the top, but below is what really matters. A worldview has to be coherent. 
It means that on Sunday is not the only day we act like Christians. We have to act like Christians every moment of every day and decide to be a Christian every moment. Yes, God's word has something to say about your money. It's actually not get more, it's give more. And if you do get more, give more. Yes, it does have something to say about your sex life. Yes, it can stick its nose in your bedroom. Yes, it does have something to say about what you do and do not watch on television or whether you should watch it at all. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It's an overarching narrative of the whole world. It tells us what the meaning of life is. People ask, what is the meaning of life? Scripture tells us it is to love God and glorify him forever, to glorify him and to enjoy him forever. Excuse me. That's the meaning of life. John Stone Street and Brad Kunkel list five major questions that every person's worldview must answer. Number one, where did everything come from? You have to answer that question. Do, do, you, believe in the, do, you, do you believe when you go into your biology class in college that, that there is no supernatural influence or supernatural designer? Or do you embrace the naturalism of naturalistic evolution? How can you believe in God and deny that there is a supernatural creator? One of the first teachings that every believer believes and accepts is that God creates. That this is his world. This is no accident. Human beings, you're no accident. You're not time plus chance plus matter. You are designed in God's image. You matter. And when we tell people that they weren't designed in God's image, we look around and we can see all of the racial problems, all of the genocide, all of the murders and killings by people who claim to be believers. We have to ask, what is a human being? Is there meaning in life and what is our purpose? Morality, who gets to determine right and wrong? That's one of the biggest problems we have today. Who gets to say that's right or that's wrong? What's wrong with the world and how can it be fixed? And what happens when we die? Is history headed somewhere or are we just on nowhere? We're just going nowhere. Christian, we have to build a coherent worldview that answers all of these questions from one source, which is the word of God. It has to be coherent. How we answer question one defines how we will answer question two and so on and so forth. Number three, we have to confront the cultural mood with God's truth. We can't expect to be used by God to redeem the fallen world while we're living in our holy huddles. If we hide our light, the world will only ever be in darkness. We have to take our light into the world. What did Jesus say? You are the light of the world. That means that if you're going to be a fashion designer, take your light into the fashion industry. If you're gonna work at the bank, take your light into the bank. If you're going to be a teacher, take your light as a teacher into the schoolroom, the schoolhouse. If you're gonna work at McDonald's, take your light into McDonald's. If you're gonna work wherever you work, whatever you have found to do, take your light there. That's what it means when we say we're confronting the cultural mood with God's truth. 
Yeah, one of the things that's happened is the cultural mood has changed. It used to be a big thing that we would, we would uh, make a big deal about uh, um, libraries and, and books. Today we don't. We have Google and people go into web.com uh, jobs. That's their new job. That's the cultural mood. Instead of being a Luddite and going out and smashing the machines and saying computers are of the devil, get a job at the computer company and take your light there. You have to take your light into the cultural mood. I know a lot of us feel the world getting darker and darker, but when it is dark, the light shines most brightly. Take your light into the world. Don't hide it. Don't hide it for fear of persecution. Don't hide it for fear of losing your job or losing friends. Let your light shine among men. That's what it means to confront the cultural mood. Jesus prayed, God, don't take them out of the world. It's so interesting. Christians are always waiting for the rapture. When's it going to happen? You see that new Kirk Cameron movie? It's going to happen next week. Jesus said, no, you're going to stay in the world. I'm going to leave you here. He said, Father, I pray that you don't take them out of the world. I pray that you leave them, but that you protect them from the evil one. Why does he want to leave us here? It's because the world needs us. You know, the deposit that we're to be guarding is to be used as an investment. We are to take it into the world and we are to spread our seed. We are to toss the seeds of the gospel so that people might mature into trees that bear fruit. He prayed that we would stay here. We have to engage the fears and anxieties of the world with the solution of Jesus Christ. We are to confront the world graciously with the truth. Finally, avoid empty talk and contradictions to your faith. Empty talk, at least for us, is trying to answer life's biggest questions without letting God's word shed light on its answers. We're going to give answers to life's biggest questions. Empty talk is when we start trying to answer these questions outside of God's word. God's word is not an artifact to be admired. It's living and active. It's a critic of the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. It is the story of life, not just for some people, but for everyone. God's word is not just another irrelevant book on religion, but rather the very thing that reveals the relevance of all of life. John Stone Street tells the story of Leslie Newbegin, a missiologist who once confronted with a Hindu scholar, who was once confronted by a Hindu scholar, who challenged her with these words. This is the words of a Hindu scholar. He says, I can't understand why your missionaries present the Bible to us in India as a book of religion. It is not a book of religion. And anyway, we have plenty of books on religion in India. We don't need any more. What I find in your Bible is a unique interpretation of the universal history the history of the whole of creation and the history of the human race, that is unique. There is nothing else in the whole religious literature of the world to put alongside it. The Bible is screaming for you to fill your lives with its truth. Avoid empty talk and contradictions to your faith. 
by living according to the word. Finally, it says contradictions. They come into play when alternatives have a greater bearing on our life than God's word. What I mean is this. When you're seeking marital advice from Cosmo rather than God's word, you're contradicting your faith. When your fellows at the bar are your closest friends rather than your Christian small group, you're contradicting your faith. Now, that's not to say Cosmo doesn't find a, 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 a truth every once in a while or that your buddies at the bar may not be right every once in a while. We believe in common grace. But when our life advice is being taken from secular sources that clearly contradict God's word, we are contradicting our faith. This is a serious, serious matter. As Paul left us with this, he said, for some have already abandoned the faith. In Acts chapter 20, Paul warned that this would happen. And he warned the leaders of the church by saying this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. My word to you this morning is be alert. Let's pray. Father, help us to be alert by being active. Help us to take seriously knowing your word of God, cultivating a Christian worldview, getting rid of contradictions in our lives and seeking your word for our Lord, I pray that you would make us active, active in learning about you because this is a serious matter. Men and women are seeking to destroy your flock this morning. God, give us eyes to spot these wolves in sheep's clothing who use our vocabulary but not our dictionary. Encourage us today that we are a little bit closer to fulfilling that end and challenge us to spend the rest of our lives guarding the deposit which you have given to us. Amen. Would you stand with us as we close in song? Share the message
Father, let the words of this song be our prayer as we leave this place today. May we live what we have learned as we go out into this world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.